Welcome to the C Word, the Conservative Podcast. Today we're talking about accreditation. I'm Jennifer Thiasson, an Objects Conservative based in Carmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an Objects Conservative based in Manchester. So, I understand that you have been on the um, pathway Mm-hmm. to accreditation for a number of years way too many years but you started early though like earlier than technically we would have been allowed to become accredited right because you wanted to prepare and know what you needed to prepare well oh, see i i'm not sure i think it was a mixture of everyone demanding that you were working towards accreditation as part of looking for jobs. And it's like, straight out of of university, that's really hard to do because Mm. you're new. But yeah, there we go. So yeah, so I I joined the pathway as a way of, Mm -hmm. yeah, I am honestly working towards my accreditation, but obviously I can't because you can't get accredited the second you come out of university because that's (laughs) insane. That's not the point of accreditation. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, technically I have been working on it for a while. (laughs) But there was definitely a point many years ago where I could have looked at myself and gone, yeah, now is the time. But when I brought Mm. it up with employers, you know, they were always like, if you could do it in your free time and if you could fund it yourself, that would be great because we're not going to support you or help you in any way, shape (laughs) or form. But we'd really like you to be accredited because we make more money for us. (laughs) As you know, I'm from a slightly different socioeconomic background than many other people. So the notion to be asked to do that and then pay more money just in general made me really angry. And I make very little secret of that. So it's a contentious part of my professional career. Rant aside, I am on the pathway and I do the thing that everyone has to do when they're on the pathway, which is fill out the annual sort of mm. CPD review or similar. I like that this is always timed around my birthday as well. So end of January, <laughs> when people do their taxes and when it's my birthday, then we also have the little, you have to do the thing for the pathway. I love it. Thanks, guys. You can either do, what is it, like a write-up of your CPD of the year and then I think it's... Oh, there's like a third thing you can do. And the other thing is you can do a write-up that will be part of your application sort of thing. And this time I mm-hmm. opted for that one because I've always done the CPD mm. review before. I know how to do it. I feel comfortable with it. Uh, as with this was very much outside of my comfort zone. So this time I did the, this is something you could technically put in as part of your application mm. thing. And it was scary. I hated it. Uh, I didn't like it. I didn't <laughs> leave enough time. I didn't leave enough time to work with my mentor with it, which made it worse. Um, and yeah, just in general, it was an awful experience because I had no guidance or any idea what to do. That's slightly my fault though, because like you helpfully actually as part of this they do supply examples of other people's applications and stuff like that so you can mm. look through what other people have done as a write-up anonymously of course and from different um, mm-hmm. types of fields but you can have a look at what other people have written up that's great except i wasn't doing anything like that i wasn't doing a treatment i was doing mm an educational outreach day as a project Uh, and activity successfully delivered and project managed and with people management Uh that there there is no hand holding for that i have no idea what they wanted from me at all (laughs) 
and I just gave it my best go and I don't think it did a very good job. Oh, I've got so, there's so much to say. <laughs> so you have not started filling in your form yet? I have started, but I've done all the easy bits. Like, what's your educational yes. background? What, like, you know, what? <laughs> what do you do? Give us a little bio. Oh, no, I haven't done the what do you do bit. Because technically, you're supposed to pick a specialism when you apply for accreditation. Oh, boy, do I have stuff to say about that as well. And I have followed my mentor's advice and said, leave that to mm. last. Fill out all of the rest. Oh, and then we'll think about where you fit mentor. best. And I think that's really good. That's a really good piece of advice because for loads of people, it will be evident. I am a ceramic specialist or I'm mm, a paintings yeah, yeah. conservator or whatever. I am a best among girl. I do object <laughs> conservation, but I do a lot of communication work. You're listening to this. This is part of it. And uh, it, yeah, it's, I do a lot of different bits. A lot of what I do is outreach or training or more collections care or I I do loads of things. That's problematic because mm. really the system really mm. wants you to fit in one box. One neat box, please. And I don't yeah. really do that. So that's interesting. So that's the one bit I had dev definitely not filled out because that's leaving until last. But I've done all the bits like, who are you? What? Where do you go to school? <laughs> mm, <laughs> like yeah, the yeah. really, really easy peasy bits. Not so much the projects, that's partially because I got really overwhelmed as well, because I started looking at them and yeah. going, freaking out. How do you feel about it? Completely opposite. I have done absolutely nothing with accreditation in my entire career. I'm fully aware that it's a thing. I'm fully aware that we are strongly encouraged to do it. But, you know, I had a chat with Jane and she said, just do it. Just do it. Do it now. <laughs> do it now she explained the form to me i was like cool it's just a form there's the standards matrix that looked like it came out of some <laughs> mad person's head but never mind i'm <laughs> i'm not neurotypical maybe it's just fine you know i just want to definitely pitch in and say that yeah this is a neurodivergent person's <laughs> idea of hell nothing here f suits my brain and that's fine <laughs> Uh, obviously it's possible yeah. and I quite like the sort of referencing system so thank God for Jane for explaining it to me and thank God for manager Jenny for going through accreditation a few years ago and uh, having <laughs> her form and projects and everything printed out just next to my desk that's just been open for a week now Aww. and the, all, like an example of how to do it properly is just bliss so I uh, have also been attending some um, accreditation coaching um, and they've been really good. They've ex been explaining the form and explaining what to do and all of the different stages to go through. But it did get to a point the other week where I was like, everyone was asking questions and it's all really open and chatty and it's really nice. But everyone was referring to their mentor and their pathway assessment deadline and all of the things that they've been doing. And I was like, I haven't done anything. <laughs> Am I meant to have done something? Am I meant to have a mentor? Am I supposed to have done an assessment? Should I have been on the pathway for a year already or something? I've come away with the feeling of it's just a form. Why, why are we free? We've all done really scary job application forms before. That's true. 
why is there so much like terrifying pressure around it the conclusion i've come to Mm -hmm. is that if you need a mentor if you're if you're a professional practicing conservator and you're working to all of the standards and doing everything right and well and within whatever the situation allows you to you should be able to pass accreditation easily and if you're struggling with the form, then there's something wrong with the form. Yes. Is that unfair? It's not unfair. And also I should say that I know that there's some consultation being done about oh, how it should change and how they might do things differently. I know mm. there's stuff in the works. I know nothing beyond that. I just know that there was like a that there was like a survey a while back and I know there's there's work being done here trying yeah. to make the process different because they realize that this is not necessarily a uh, inclusive process or one that's particularly easy mm. to go through and stuff like that. I don't, I, what I can't tell, um, hashtag neurodiverse, <laughs> what I can't tell is whether this is a really bad idea to whinge about accreditation before one has gone through accreditation. Like, I don't know whether we should piss off the accreditors. Hey now, they, right? might, they might not listen. <laughs> They might not listen. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. They might not even know. Uh, they might not ever hear this. If they do, is that any different from just knowing that we'll be horrendously nervous, or just because we have reservations, or about just horrendously the... confused? Yeah, that's fine, isn't it? Isn't everyone a little bit queasy at the, these <laughs> things? Isn't everyone confused? <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> The thing that strikes me about the um, coaching sessions is the huge breadth of variety in our field. That's a nice takeaway. It's really, really huge because we're talking about, you know, maybe your specialism is collections management or conservation management or maybe your specialism is buildings conservation and you work up ladders. And I'm very impressed that they developed a method of assessing for accreditation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's as much as I like complaining about this, I do also have an enormous amount of admiration for people who looked at the mishmash that is our field and went, mm. I reckon we can find a relatively standardized way of testing this. Really? Because mm. that's bonkers, isn't it? Is that not bonkers? <laughs> and then they just invited their friends to be accredited without without going through the standardized form oh that is a very spicy topic isn't it and i don't i and i don't particularly agree or disagree as to whether people <laughs> should have you know started the pool of accredited conservators in order to start the process i get the reasoning but the whole purpose of this <laughs> is to standardize it massively across a huge huge variety of different disciplines and specialisms within conservation and then people are like you're doing it right would you like to be accredited so for people who aren't aware in the early days of icon you can't say you should trust the accredited conservators without having any. So the the way to solve that mm. was sort yeah. of to just make some people that people sort of really trusted be accredited without doing any of the paperwork that anyone else had to do. So it, it creates an interesting generational gap. There is a generation of conservators who are accredited who never had to do any of the, uh, mm. let's say, enormous amount of paperwork 
and nerve-wracking interview stages. They didn't have to do any of that. That seems unfair coming after, but, you know, that's that's how it is. The, them's the ropes. <laughs> that's, that's just how it is. <laughs> it's just about the fact that there's a discrepancy there in how things were measured. Yeah. And yeah. how things... How things were created. And that always creates a little weird power imbalance, a slight wobble in the system that's sort of annoying on a principle yeah. level. <sighs> yeah. It's annoying when considering the huge cost that is justified very easily by talking about, you know, the time that is spent by the assessors and all of that. Oh, yeah. Like looking at the actual time and effort put in, like yeah. arguably yeah, it should yeah. cost a lot more. It's just that it costs a lot of money. <laughs> At time of recording, it's £700, yeah. by the way. If we have inconsistency in the system already and already built in from the word go, can we not have a number of different methods or processes that work for different people and in different workplace situations? Is that a mad suggestion that we just... Because one size doesn't ever fit anyone, really. We've all tried on those hats. They don't fit. <laughs> and they do. No, they definitely don't. They sit on top of my head like a little fascinator. Um, uh, <laughs> they do They do say everywhere that they will make accommodations mm. if you need them. Like, you know, for, they, do, for, yeah. and, you, and they will make reasonable adjustments yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. But I think the argument against having five different ways of getting accredited would be like, but then it's not as easy to compare. It's sort of like yes. changing a standardized test. It's like you can no longer compare the data from one set with another, except the sets in these cases are professional people. They're human beings uh, <laughs> who work differently but anyway. But the sets are incomparable anyway. They are, yes. So here we have the fundamental problem of like, but you already can't compare them because the the, yeah. in, the initial set is based on probably not favoritism. Uh, it's based on they were around then. And they knew their stuff. Okay, great. But now we can't do that. And oh, yeah, it's so complicated. There are so many complicated feelings about this. I can I can see what the arguments for and against, I guess, is mm. what I'm trying to say badly. I can understand the way why it's like it is, but it just, it, it seems quite a lot of the problems. And this is this is taken from listening to people talking about their own work and their own sort of asking their own questions about the choices they need to make about what to do and a lot of the questions are like a really nitty gritty like so this example is this example okay or what should i do in this very specific situation it's like of course you of course you need to answer that question because the your specific example is very different from the very, very specific example that was given in the explanation. And so it just sort of... It's interesting to me that people are ha asking those questions because I feel like that's a question to ask a mentor about, sort of, in that if they yeah. can't ask those questions, then then who can, sort of, like... I feel like that's sort of more that you should have a general idea of what the process is, but they can't... Mm. I, I don't know. I don't know what I would want to get out of a coaching session. I deliberately didn't sign up for these because I'm too busy. So I can't, <laughs> I don't have time to do these right now. I'm going for, we're recording this at the end of February and I want to go for the end of March. You're insane. <laughs> 
It relies on several things. It relies on me getting my shit together in time. And that's the thing. I've already got all the projects. I know all the projects I'm going to choose and I know that they fit. I know I've got the evidence. Apart from in one case, I might have thrown away the bits of planning, time management stuff that I need, which is going to be really annoying. But I can show them the process. I feel like then you're doing way better than I am because a lot of the time I feel like, yeah, but that's all like a bunch of bookmarked websites and some bits of paper. It isn't... Okay, so okay, back to what <laughs> back to how you need to back up your projects. Basically in accreditation you pick a couple <laughs> of projects, right? More than a couple, yeah. quite a few projects and you five at least. Um yeah. and you make sure that you talk about the different criteria that they need to be able to judge you on. And you have to bring your evidence base with you. It can't just be after, after research I did this. Show us the research, as in show us every single source that you used. Every single piece of paper you scribbled on, show us everything. <laughs> it needs to be the full mm. process. This is a bit that terrifies me because I'm like, mm. mine tends to be like, yeah, I wrote these things. And then I talked to some people, but I talked to, to them over the phone. I didn't have a written email conversation yeah. with them. And then I met someone else for coffee and we bounced some ideas. And I did a sketch on the back of a napkin and that napkin went in the bin. And <laughs> yeah, like it. It sounds mad, but it's my process and it seems, it certainly seems to work. So I would love to hear from someone who's gone through accreditation by showing like napkin sketches. That would be amazing. But uh, that's unfortunately probably not true. I don't mm. really gather evidence in the way that's required. So I'm going to have to create a new workflow for myself where I do that mm. and show those projects. Which feels mm. really insincere because it makes it seem like I don't do yeah. research, but it's just that I don't, I guess I don't do it in the clinical way that is required of the process, is what I'm saying. Like, you do your academic research in the academic way, but your sort of interpersonal things are more personal. Like, you're not sending somebody a cold email saying, Would you like to meet to discuss plaster? <laughs> No, I don't do that. <laughs> You're right. It's a random WhatsApp message and I don't think exactly. I can show a WhatsApp. I mean, I can show a WhatsApp chat log, but they just have to ignore the bits where we talk about cats and emojis for a little bit. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's very... You could, I reckon you could do that. It's a very organic process. I'm now writing my emails differently because I'm like, I might need to use this as evidence for accreditation. So yeah. I'm not using exclamation marks or wishing someone a good day with their rice or whatever. Like, Chloe, I'm disappointed. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you should do all of those bits and put that bits of, those bits of personality I'm in. I'm talking to a client and he's bringing us some banners and it's going to be wonderful. And he's staying over in Manchester on the trip. And I was like, very neat i wrote out the email saying these are all the places you need to go and eat are you staying with friends if not then then these are my recommendations for where to go and also manchester museum has just opened it's really fun let's have coffee and i was like no 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 delete all of that and just say have a nice time clearly no or what i don't know I'm like, I want to say to people, like, let's meet up and have dinner. That's not, you can't include that in accreditation. Can you? Maybe we all That's should. Maybe we all should, because it's how it all works. 
it makes me sad the notion that maybe we're losing all of these beautiful interactions because we're all trying yeah. to be professional for our future accreditation committee. That's just sad. And it does make That's me sad. It does make me think of, you know, people I know who are extremely charming and then mm. they'll send an email that's completely out of character because it's just yeah. so stiff and it makes me think is that what you do i hope not please don't send those emails just be nice ask about yeah the birds in the garden or just do something yeah. nice the accreditation yeah. people have to suck it up <laughs> they can use highlighters Include in your emails <laughs> well we all need to be human as well that's how i get most of yeah. my work done <laughs> exactly but that's an interesting insight and i'm glad you told me that because i think that's interesting <laughs> i just think it is i think that's wildly fascinating that yeah. you're altering your behavior it's just making me very self-conscious about the way i behave professionally and i would like to take this moment to say that the concept of professionalism is <laughs> it's classist agreed and ableist and we should abandon it now Agreed. Be nice. I don't know what kind of revolution we want to have here, but it's 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 going to be a friendly one. It's going to be it's a friendly have one. Smiley face emojis in it, and possibly gifts too. I want to say to everyone attending the accreditation coaching, like you can do it already. You can do it. Just fill. Just do the form. It's fine. Just do the form. Except the problem is the form's so complicated and <laughs> terrifying. They can't just do the form. I speak personally. You don't have to do it, obviously. You can be good and not be accredited. It doesn't matter. Yeah, loads of people are. The problem is lots of NHLF-funded projects have to be carried out by an accredited conservator. One of the reasons that I want to become accredited is not to show that I'm competent, but it's because it allows me to do more work because a lot of the work mm. is being, you know, yeah. is I'm excluded from. And ultimately, that's how I pay my bills. So it puts you on the list. What's it called again? The accredited conservators list. Oh, the What's icon register. That's the one. That's it. Yes. Although, I think yeah. you pay a bit extra to be on it. I think you do. Everything has to be maintained. I understand. Yes. That. No. Absolutely. And I, I do also understand that this is how we can champion for needing mm. higher pay and proving that we are great and that not just anyone can pick up a paintbrush and a scalpel and go, I reckon I'm a conservator. I get it. <laughs> I get that. But also there are a lot of systematic problems with mm. accreditation that I'm not really on board with. But I think in some ways I probably have to become part of the system to see what we can yeah. do about it, which is exactly. annoying. And I think that a lot of the people in the system are fully aware and are doing their best to sort it out. Not going to lie, I'm, I'm, I am impressed with anyone who has ACR after their name. I'm like, well done you, you're a survivor. Yeah, so I have a lot of conflicted feelings about it. But yeah, Icon, we're not saying that you're a system of oppression. We're just saying that there's <laughs> fundamental problems with any gatekeeping, uh, which you, of course, know, yeah. because you will have these debates amongst yourselves all of the time yeah i know that we're not making it easier on you by having these discussions again and very publicly but <laughs> they are worth having you know they are worth having they are worth having i think there is a danger of um us all being very very in the field and not looking out of the field very often yeah um 
But let's talk about specialisms. Oh yeah, that was another is, thing. This is a, this is something that I um, I actually couldn't attend the specialisms talk in the coaching session, so okay. I watched it back afterwards and therefore couldn't ask any questions. So I've put down objects conservator with a specialism in textiles. The little you know explanation of how to decide what specialism you should put down is well, what do you do most of? Yeah. And that will essentially guide who it is that they choose to be your assessors on assessment day. Yes, because on assessment day, at least as it stands at the time of recording, you get someone who is in your specialism so that they understand what you're doing and someone who isn't in your specialism so that mm. they do not understand what you're doing deliberately, yeah. which I like. I like that approach. Oh, yeah. Someone who speaks your lingo, hopefully anyway, and someone who thinks you're a complete alien. I think that's perfect. <laughs> that means that you've got to get the level of explanation right. So I put down that because yeah. most of my practical conservation is large painted textiles. Yes. I'm fascinated but... you didn't put down textiles, just straight up textiles. Because my job is to do everything. Ah. And I am not relinquishing that, regardless of what anyone says. Because mm -hmm. if, for example, if something needs to go out on loan, and it happens to be a large 19th century wooden chest, mm -hmm. it is me that will sort it out. And so I feel that my value... Okay, yeah. Though it's not a specific skill, like it's not... I. My hand skills in textiles conservation are superb. Uh, well, <laughs> they're re like I'm really like I'm really good at what I do. Yeah, but my skill is not that. My skill is being able to look at something and going, oh, I better. Mm, I don't know what to do, and then looking that up and doing the research and the trialing and the testing and then executing the thing that I need to do in order to do the in order yeah. to send something on loan and it's very similar to you like it's similar in the well quite a lot of this is a chat over coffee and a whatsapp message quite a bit of my research is is twitter and i will ask on twitter hey guys what should i do and people i know and respect will reply and say try this and i will try that and it will work yeah but is that okay <laughs> well you have the judgment and the hand skills to carry out what they suggest exactly yeah so and i've given people advice still up yeah on exactly the same, still... in the same way yeah that's that's just knowledge sharing so i i would exactly. say that's okay but i can totally see how people would maybe freak out about it i think that's interesting <laughs> um what it makes me think of was that i had an interesting moment the other day of Someone asked me, how can you be an object conservator? How would you know what to just do with something that ends up in front of you? Like if they're all different. And I was so fascinated by someone asking me this that I was like, but I know the materials. Like I yeah. can look at it and I know what it's made of and I know the materials. And that's, mm. that, that's where it starts. What's it made of? And I just have a broad knowledge of that and then I can work, work it out. <laughs> and they were yeah, like, exactly. and they were like, oh, okay. It's more that I know the materials rather than I know everything about antique furniture or everything mm. about glazed earthenware. Like that's <laughs> that's not my approach at all, which is, is sort of interesting to think about. But yeah, the specialism thing is... What I know, do you think you're going to put down? I don't know. 
Why would you not put down objects conservation? Fundamentally, a lot of the projects that are recent enough mm. and complex enough, because there's area of mm. complexity mm-hmm. here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that bent my brain in circles. You can't just pick whatever I did last week. It's got to be something that's mm. complex. And a lot of the things I do are actually quite simple. It's a ceramics repair. It requires almost no thought uh, <laughs> or... <laughs> piece of archaeology and now it's in a nice box and properly supported. So I don't think I have enough complex projects on the workbench but to is justify. the communication project, is the communication complex? See, that I don't know because no one gives you examples of that. That was the problem I came across from writing up the one ah. I did. Is it trying to communicate conservation with anyone who's between a toddler and a teenager <laughs> that's a very wide range you've got to adapt and yeah, think on the f- yeah, yeah. you've got to have yeah. a wide offer of activities and ways of explaining things that's complex to me it's but you know like it's not the same thing as like delivering a zoom talk to fellow conservatives that's it's not the same mm. thing at all like it there there are different challenges with both so i would argue that what i did was complex <laughs> But I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily know if they will agree. <laughs> I don't know. Talking to children will count as complex, you know? Like, I don't know what the, I don't know what the benchmark here is. Hundreds of people have gone through accreditation yeah. and they've gone through successfully and they've had each individual, like, little questions and things to work around and could you make allowance for this and that? And of course, the answer is always yes, because the system always has to be adapted to fit somebody. Yeah. Because the You're system right. isn't perfect. You're right. It's just going to have to be okay. That's all it is. It's just going to have to be okay. I've got to get my museum to pay for it first because I can't afford £700. <laughs> and they have said that they will pay for it. Oh, but, um, okay. You know, Fingers crossed. We'll see. It's June 22nd, 2022. And... I'm at a sort of all-day pathway to accreditation event. Uh, We've had a lovely morning session with two speakers talking through what their application was like and then what their assessment was was like as well, which sort of demystifies the process a bit and just helps you understand how much work goes into these sorts of things. It's been really nice hearing um, about their experiences. I feel like it's it has helped me understand how much work this is, how much evidence you're going to need, how nitpicky people are going to be. Um, it feels sort of daunting and impossible. And that's before we talk about the financial side of things. But aside from that, people were sort of asking about, there seems to be this bit of the assessment, not the apl- application as such, but the assessment day, that when you're being assessed, you have to show your assessors uh, a couple of things on your workbench, like what you're working on currently. That's not necessarily part of what your prepared material, but that you can just talk them through. That does sound nice in theory, uh, but someone did sort of flag up that, well, what if you can't really? And um, one of the speakers was super awesome and shared some surprisingly difficult um, circumstances that she went through at the time and how she had to, as she's in private practice, basically ask for finished objects back from their owners like sort of basically loaning them and just be like can i have these for the duration of the assessment because i've already treated them and i need to be able to show what i did because it's about the quality of the work i do 
so that that way it wasn't an empty space, that there was something on the workbench. Um, and in exchange for this, uh, she offered to do work for free that they wouldn't otherwise afford. And I'm like, I can't do that. I can't afford to do that. <laughs> Not to mention that I don't know that anyone would agree to that. I don't know. It just, um, I think the stipulation that there has to be something on your workbench at the time is quite a big ask if you're in private practice. But maybe the assumption is that if you're going through accreditation, you've done this for 20 or 30 years, not 10, as in my case, and you, you, you always have stuff in, you, you can't, you can't move for how much work you're turning down. I don't know. That's not my reality. So I don't know that I'll be able to do that. And it doesn't sound like something they're flexible on. So that might be a deal breaker for me. We'll see. Um, good times. Not something I'm going to worry about right this second, but it does annoy me on principle. You might be able to tell. Okay. So I'm going to get accredited, hopefully. And this is accreditation <laughs> application prep diaries day one. <laughs> um, it should be day multiple three at least. So, um, I decided to sign up to, uh, be on the pathway through ICON, um, Institute for Conservation in the UK, uh, to get my accreditation qualification, if it's called that. So Jane talked me into it basically is what happened. Thanks Jane. Um, <laughs> uh in november last year and um i so i signed up to it and then i had an email from um heather doyle to uh pathway members advertising a um set of acr application workshops um for accreditation coaching and these workshops are via zoom um i was way late in asking to be part of the cohort um so i emailed her about two weeks late saying i'm really sorry can i join because i had a change of heart on whether i'd actually had time and so on um she was really nice instantly shared with me the uh link for the next one so i'd only missed one talk she'd sent me the recording for the first week that i'd missed and then the link for the next week um of course then i couldn't attend the next week either so i've it's now week three today uh so in 10 minutes is the next uh next talk um the third talk on what's it called complexity and autonomy um i've just listened to day one um so that was an hour on uh the standards and that was really really good and I've made lots of notes uh day two is specialisms um and I'll be listening to that after day three so I'm doing it a bit funny way around but um it's been very busy so that's my excuse how did I find it I'm absolutely delighted by the fact that they're doing these um it's making a lot of sense Jane helped me a lot in November she talked me through it in her by way of encouraging me to uh, feel that I could essentially go through accreditation um, so this is kind of formalizing 
my understanding of what I should do next. Um, and I am leaning probably quite heavily on what Jane has advised me to do. Um, this session was a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. Um, I'm quite critical generally of accreditation. Um, but I understand that it's something I should do as the next stage of my career. Uh, but I'm also very critical of specialisms uh, and the existence of them. Being an objects conservator charged in charge of an objects collection, but specialising in textiles, because that's the main thing that we do. I don't know what to do. Specialisms is the next topic. So uh, I'll see how I feel after 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 topic number two. But um, yeah, the roller coaster of... There were moments during the hour-long talk um, recording where I felt really excited because I was thinking of the different projects that I could talk about and um, what to write about and all of the, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I've done all of these things. And then, like, absolute dread. <laughs> absolute dread. I don't want to do it. It's scary. It's overwhelming. Um, it's really, really complicated. I've done all of the things... I know I have done all of the things. I have d in the past demonstrated all of the standards, but I don't know how to talk about it or whether it counts. I did plastics conservation training, but in 2019, does that count? I don't know. So um, it's a bit... Ah! So I've just started listening to session three to catch up um, so that I'm up to date when I attend session four on Friday, it being Tuesday today. This one's on specialisms. And so I'm kind of ready to feel a bit fired up about it because I don't think specialisms work for everyone or everyone's jobs. And I don't see why we should pick one. And it's just like the every year selecting which emails you want to receive thing. I, I realise it's helpful, I understand, but I don't know. I'm an objects conservator. I'm interested in everything. Okay, so it wasn't as um, baffling as I thought it was going to be, uh, apart from the don't be too vague, don't be too specific thing, don't be too broad. Um I think, and based on the questions that other people were asking, I think everyone's just thinking about this too much, including myself. So the most helpful thing that Heather said was the specialisms you pick or the way that you describe yourself as a conservator is used to pick your assessors. Like that seems all right to me. <laughs> But I still don't know quite what I'm going to say because I think I want to I want to do, say, objects conservator with a specialism in textiles. But I also want to cram the podcast in there as well. And I have used the, what I do with the podcast in the rest of my job in terms of like conservation outreach and stuff. So I don't know if there's a plus outreach side of things but I'm just gonna ask them <sighs> the thing that really struck me I, I know that last at the end of session three I was rocketing around basically thinking I don't think I can do it in time and I think I can do it in time since then I've had a conversation with wonderful manager and she was like why are you pushing yourself to do this in such a short amount of time 
it's going to be fine. <laughs> and I, but I've also spoken to my partner who is, he's invested in this, but he's, you know, he's sick of my anxiety bullshit, I suppose is the safest way of saying it. So I was like, oh, I don't know whether, oh, everyone's got a mentor and everyone's doing a, you know, an assessment, annual pathway assessment. And I haven't done any of these things. And oh God. And he was like, how do you apply? Oh, there's a form. Okay, so you just have to fill in a form. Yeah, I just have to fill in a form. So his attitude was just fill in the form and see how you feel. And so I think I just need to fill in the form because at the moment quite a lot of the anxiety is, what's the form going to ask me? So I could just look at the form and see if I can fill it in, right? (laughs) But um, I am still really... It's not just a form. This is why people have got all of the help and the mentors and they're doing the assessment and they've, they're on the pathway for years. And I've been on the pathway for like two months. So I need to speak to Jenny. I think I need to, I need, think I need to chat with Jenny. <sighs> so I've just finished the first live session of I'm back to thinking I can't do it. The content's fine, I think. Though I'm not sure what counts now as a practical project and what's complex enough, but I think that's that's a normal anxiety to have. What is freaking me out at the moment is that everyone else is talking about their mentors and whether or not they should submit their pathway reviews. What is a pathway review? Am I so behind in this? Should I? Ah. I need someone to give me a fucking timetable of events. But that doesn't really show very good autonomy, does it? I just don't know what is expected of me. I can't. I thought I could just do the work and submit the form. Can I not? Maybe I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I need a mentor. <laughs> Maybe I just need a mentor. Okay. Right, so it says on the accreditation section of the ICON website, Pathway Annual Review. The pathway is designed to be a membership category in which members are able to identify that they are practicing conservators who are actively working towards accreditation. As such, members must submit evidence on an annual basis. This sounds like I should have been working on this for years. But I have already done the work, is my concern. Concern, question. I've already done the work. I've just not been on the accredit, I've not been on the pathway. Because I've been, I'm doing this grudgingly, let's face it. Annual review in January each year. Right. There are three options. Well, I'm just not going to do that, am I? Because it's the 27th today. Right. Step one, get a mentor. Work out what's going on. They'll probably tell me that I can't submit in two months. And then it'll be October, I reckon. I didn't know it was necessary to be on the pathway for that long. Hmm.
So I just found out that um, the museum cannot fund my application for accreditation this round, meaning March 2023, which is just a bit of a bummer, really. It's fine, because it was a push anyway for time, but I was like gunning for it you know, um, but they can't afford to pay for it because of the cost of living crisis and all of the things, perfectly reasonable. I did very briefly entertain the possibility of paying for it myself and no, I just can't um, uh, <laughs> buy about £650, <laughs> so uh, that's not going to happen. Um, they've said ask again in October so I'll ask again in October but um yeah it's just a bit of a shame but there we are I might just st still keep on with the momentum see if I can keep filling out the form because you know I'll only gain more experience I'll only write more sensible emails um between February and October won't I so yeah pity but there we are we are at the mercy of our institutions or our finances or both so hi everyone I'm speaking to a special guest here um Heather would you like to introduce yourself and your involvement in icon accreditation please yeah, hello everybody. Um, my name is Heather Doyle. I'm the accreditation manager at ICON, which I've done since November 2021. And um, so my role is basically to support pathway members from the moment they join the pathway to the point at which they become accredited. And there's quite a few different strands to that. So a lot of it at the start with with newer members is is kind of explaining to them what ICON accreditation is, because you, we do have a few people who have misconceptions. Um, I do things like I review the pathway review submissions um, alongside my colleagues, Patrick and Chloe. So, um, for instance, this year, if anybody submitted their pathway review, I read all the project write-ups. So if that was you, then I was the person that gave you some feedback. And I like to talk to people about how they can emphasize certain standards or, or, or plug any kind of skills gaps. Um, I run programs of workshops to support people through the process of going through accreditation. So talking about things like application and assessment processes. Uh, what else do I do? I oversee all the administration that comes with accreditation. So that means managing the accreditation committees. Um, I have a big logistical job I have to do twice a year about helping match people to the right assessors, which takes bizarrely such a long time. Um, and I also, my, you know, a big part of my job at the moment is making sure the accreditation systems fit for purpose. So I do a lot of stuff around academic standards and, and kind of looking at the design of the process and, and where it works and where it doesn't work and engage a lot with the other stakeholders involved. So engage a lot with assessors, accreditation committee, mentors, that kind of thing. Brilliant. So just a bit then. Yeah, <laughs> just, just, just a bit. It does. It's, it's pretty full. Yeah. <laughs> what are the things that people most commonly struggle with or get wrong in their application forms? 
Okay. Um, and I'm kind of bearing in mind that the application form is probably going to be changing over the next year. So, so yeah, we might be designing some of the, these things out of the process, really. Mm. But I think just something to bear in mind for when you're going through accreditation in general is one of the issues we have, people don't always talk about a couple of the standards in enough detail in their form, um, particularly standards two and three. So standard two... So it, I'm, I'm sort of, maybe if I go backwards a bit, becoming accredited is about being able to show that you can meet all of the ICON standards at proficient level. So it's it's not linked to your job title or your seniority. It's a, it's explicitly linked to meeting the ICON standards. And sometimes when we have people applying, they maybe haven't thought through the detail of some of those standards in it sufficiently. Um, and you absolutely need to do that. So standard two is about sort of conservation options and strategies. And this is where a candidate can really demonstrate their kind of critical thinking skills and their complexity of thought, because it's about your ability to look at the heritage you've got and make appropriate, informed, ethical decisions about what the best course of action is with that heritage. So we often get candidates who just say things like we decided to do X without any kind of explanation of what X is or or any kind of explanation of what the other options they've considered are and, and what assessors and the accreditation committee are looking for is they want to see a clear decision-making process at work. They want to see rationale. You know, they need to know that a conservator is doing something because it's the best action in the interests of the heritage that they're looking after. It, it also taps into loads of the kind of judgment and ethics standards as well. Um, and if you're just saying this is what we decided to do without any kind of further detail, you're you're really losing the opportunity to kind of show your sort of level of, of thought. Um, yeah. And that can really disadvantage people, I think. So that that would be the first one. I think the second one, in a very similar vein, it talks about standard three, which is the conservation measures, like what actions do you take? in order to protect that heritage. And I think, again, with this one, the devil is in the detail. Um, we get a few people who can be a bit vague. So they, if they're doing a treatment, they might say, well, I applied a consolidant, but they don't talk about what product it was, what are the properties of that product? What sort which of one and how? <laughs> yeah, which one and how? How was it applied? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, you know, it's really important to use that kind of subject-specific terminology because you know, your application and your assessment is always going to be reviewed by someone who is a subject specialist in your area. So I think where people are a bit vague in standard three, I think that can kind of really work against them both on assessment day and, and in application. If I was to choose one other, I would say maybe people putting forward projects for accreditation that aren't sufficiently complex. Oh, so, okay. Um, yeah, so so basically to become an accredited conservator, it's not an entry-level qualification. Mm. It's not something you do, you know, you go to university at 18, you qualify at 21, and then you immediately go for accreditation. The idea is that it's it's a marker of kind of quality, and so people should have been working for a few years to kind of build up their professional knowledge and their ability to work autonomously and, that you know, their skills. And... So one of the ways we do this is we say that you should be able to manage a complex conservation project. And there are various definitions of what that means. It could mean that you're working at scale and, and 
doing a project that requires marshalling a lot of resources and a lot of people. It could mean that you're doing something that dealing with an object that's incredibly unstable and needs really, really careful hand skills. Or you might need to apply quite a, a bit of specialist knowledge to a problem, maybe if you're in a heritage building and you're dealing with asbestos or something like that. But it it has to be a complex project. And I think sometimes people fall into the trap of choosing their most headliney projects um, or their favourite projects. So, you know, they might sort of, if they're a wall paintings conservator, they want to talk about the Banksy as opposed to the old advertising sign that's painted on the side of a, a shop. But actually what you need to think about is which projects hit the standards best, which projects are the most technical. And sometimes, you know, if all you've been doing is a little bit of gentle surface cleaning as opposed to really dealing with an unstable object, you can't show those standards. Yeah, so I think I think those would be my, my top three. I think standards two, three, and just make sure you're picking your projects carefully. So your coaching sessions were full of this sort of um, great advice in filling out the form. Um, What's your top advice to people to take away from the support that ICON offers their pathway members? I think that the main thing I would think of is 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 don't go it alone. Seek out seek out support. Oh. So like you don't know what you don't know, right? Mm. Um and so if you're doing this without tapping into the support that I offer, the support that the mentors offer, talking to ACRs for you know in in if you're a member of things like the the icon sort of groups and networks and and subject specific kind of groups you know easel paintings or ceramics or whatever then you know tapping into the the network there tapping into any other ACRs that might be in your organization i think that's really the best way to go because you can pick up so many useful bits of advice or guidance that just won't have occurred to you if you're tackling this on your own and you know it is a big undertaking and there are a lot of very very knowledgeable people out there um so yeah just just connect with people I think is would be my advice so what would you say to someone who can't decide if accreditation is for them this is a really big question and it's something that in the series of accreditation episodes we will probably come back to the decision of 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 accreditation as as a sort of career choice um yeah i mean it is a, it is a tricky question and undoubtedly i think there's there's periods of time when accreditation isn't the right way forward for people i mean if you're sitting at home with a teething baby and a toddler that's holding you hostage and kind of you know you've got back-to-back Peppa Pig being, you know, I've been that person and I, you know, it's hard to kind of get your head around sometimes. So there might be understandably times in people's life and career when they actually just step back and say, this is not for me right now. And and that's absolutely fair enough. Um, but I think, I, th- I personally, I, I think it's worth thinking more holistically about your practice than just thinking about what are the projects I'm doing? What, are, what, what have I got on at the moment? Because, you know, thinking about, where you want your career to go in the future and also what your stakeholders need from you and I think that's where accreditation really has value because Mm. I mean if we talk about the stakeholders for instance there's there's a lot of people who may need the services of conservators who understand very little about the process of conservation itself so you know if you are the private owner of that 
old teapot that needs conservation or even you know you could even be in a in a heritage organization and be managing heritage buildings but you may have come up from a more kind of curatorial route rather than a conservator route and so you don't necessarily or you might be a business manager and you don't necessarily understand the finer details of 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 the work and so if you're in the process of trying to hire a member of staff or commission somebody for a contract you don't necessarily know exactly what good conservation practice looks like and so you know you're you're going to rely on on the tried and tested markers of quality and being an ACR is a marker of quality because it shows you've been kind of held to account to industry standards and that you've met those standards being an ACR is really advantageous because it's showing the senior management in the organization that actually okay you may not be a conservator but I have been judged by my peers to be of a certain standard and it shows you know members of the Joe public who who you know don't really understand the first thing about it but they know that they've got something very precious that they want taken care of that you're not going to trash their beloved you know heirloom that they got from their great aunt Doris and that you're going to treat it ethically and responsibly and 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 be able to actually deliver deliver a good job so i think but i think it's also useful for thinking about future proofing your career and where you want to go so you know if you eventually have plans to well i'd like to set up my own consultancy and and you know be a recognized expert in a very niche field or something like that then then actually showing that you know you're not at the beginning of your career and that you've got some sort of you know serious kind of chops about you and that you've met all these standards i think is is a very useful thing um i think but if that argument doesn't convince and it might not be and i know there are people out there who aren't convinced by that argument because they say well i've been doing this for so long and it's never held me back so far i think the other thing is that actually if you are an acr you belong to a community of people who really share your values about conservation you know everybody buys into the standards everybody's committed to good practice and a lot of the ACRs that I speak to just say that they find being part of that com- community really rewarding and enri- really enriching. Okay, that was a lovely answer. And I'm taking those things on board, I think, because <laughs> I'm at the decision of deciding or having decided and then, and then you know, backwards and forwardsing over it. But that I'm, I'll, I'm taking those on board. That was definitely... It's, it, it is a big commitment and mm. I get that. And I, you know, this is why I think about it has to be at a point when you're ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is it is challenging um but it's a very diverse community i mean we've seen so many different specialisms in the just in the 18 months that i've been there you know mm. everything from kind of horology to kind of victorian ceramic tiling architectural paint research so you know there's a kind of place for for all conservators i think it's you know it's a really stimulating diverse community mm-hmm. so finally um in this episode, Jenny and I have talked about the things that we um, have really struggled with in the format of accreditation as it is now. Um, and part of that you've, you've touched on is being the huge diversity of the people that are being tested is vast. And the, the, the process that has been developed, obviously, um, is used by all of those people equally, which comes with challenges. But we've also said there are some changes coming. Um, in what way is the process changing? And in what way does this affect applicants and assessors? Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I can talk through that. If it doesn't, it's one of those subjects because I've kind of lived and breathed it for the past few months. It makes mm. sense in my head. But mm-hmm. if anything doesn't make sense, Chloe, kind of pick me up on it. And okay. I'll go into it into a bit more detail. Okay. It's one of those things that I now know backwards and I yes. assume it makes sense, but it, it may not. Um, yeah, so we, one of the things that was concerning us is that application numbers were declining. Um, right. Oh, that's interesting. And we were a bit concerned about this. And, and when we did, we did a big sort of scoping exercise amongst all the different stakeholders involved and particularly pathway members. And when we unpicked it, one of the things that kept coming up over and over and over again was that people were not necessarily less interested in accreditation and that the, you know, people still valued it. But the process of becoming accreditation was just throwing up so many logistical challenges for people ah. that it was making it quite difficult to get through um, and that the process just wasn't working for the membership. So so there were a few issues. I mean, one, I think, was really, really important one was around equality and inclusion in the sense that mm-hmm. the application form is very long. It's very technical. And members found that really challenging and particularly members with additional needs. So, you know, if you have people with like neurodivergent conditions, you know, dyspraxia, dyslexia, mm-hmm. ADHD, autistic spectrum disorder, that sort of thing, um, they were finding that form really hard. Mm-hmm. And actually, although we've never done any research on this, I think anecdotally, there's an indication that number of people with neurodivergent conditions is probably higher in conservation than in the population in general it seems to be you know i think if you've got that kind of if if you've got a brain that kind of thinks in those sorts of ways then it lends itself really well to problem solving and problem solving is at the core of what a lot of conservatives mm. have to do so it kind of seems to attract people who 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 think differently um so we've got this form that was proving a real barrier it was also proving a bit of a barrier to people with english as a second language and we have a lot of people who look because they don't have any kind of um, conservative standards in their home countries look to the UK as a kind of leader to try and sort of get on board with our accreditation system. So increasingly what we were finding was that it was not becoming an exercise in measuring people's readiness for assessment, but it was more about measuring people's ability to get to grips with a really tricky form, which was absolutely not what the process was supposed to be about. So we've kind of felt like we needed to address that. And um, and and what we were coming across, we were coming across lots of candidates that we sort of started referring to as revolving door candidates, where they would start the process, they would commit to it, they'd start the process of doing this form, try and get their heads around a bit, do a little bit, and then they'd get pulled away for like three months on a big project. And then by the time they came back to it, they'd forgotten everything and they had to start <laughs> from scratch. And they were in this constant oh, yeah. cycle of starting over. Does that sound familiar? It Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, that's no good for anyone. Nobody wants to be constantly trying to get through this process for like three or four years and not making any progress. So what we've tried to do is implement some changes to make it more accessible. And this is all still in the implementation phase. So so nothing's been rolled out yet, but it will be coming. Um, So the application form itself will be changing. It will be shorter. It will be more of a kind of biographical form. So you know, recording your training history, your work history, the nature and scope of your current job. Um, there won't be project write-ups in the application form. There won't be all this kind of cross-referencing with the matrix to tick the standards, that kind of thing. Um, it's basically the form, instead of going to the AC committee where it will be reviewed and, and sort of, is this person ready for um, assessment? 
it will be triaged by myself and a member of the committee to just indicate that the candidate is appropriate. So, you know, are they working in conservation as opposed to being a curator, where obviously mm-hmm. that's wrong set of skills? You know, are they, have they been doing this a few years? They're not like brand new graduates who've only ever sort of been through the education system. You know, are they pathway members? That kind of thing. So we can kind of screen out the people who we know are not going to get through because they, they're coming at the wrong time or with the wrong skill set or whatever. And then from that point, we so we anticipate the application form will be much quicker. It'll be, you know, instead of like this big 20 page kind of encyclopedia, it'll be more just like, you know, applying for a job. It'll be three or four pages. Um, and then at that point, prov- providing the candidate is at the kind of appropriate level, they will be moved onto an e-portfolio system. Um, and so ah. instead of everything being focused on the final assessment where it's a big, long day where, you know, people get exhausted and really burnt out from it. Um, the process will be that you once you are on the e-portfolio system, you have a year to complete your ACR accreditation. So instead of having to like focus all your energies around one date, you can chip away at it over shorter periods of time. So um, what they'll be able to do is there's no, we're removing, there's no upper limit on the number of projects you can use. So you don't have to find this magic combination of five perfect projects that cover everything. Five will be kind of like a lower limit, but people can refer to as many pieces of work as they wish. Um, so, you know, that that will make it easier as well, because they, there is that a lot of people really struggle with, like, what's the perfect combination of projects to include? Um, and then what you'll do is you'll, you know, you'll look through these sort of standards and you'll think, right, OK, I've got um, standard two where I've got to actually talk about my ability to kind of, you know, make an assessment. Well, I've got some really good examples of condition assessments here that I've done. Um this one was particularly challenging because it was a big object or a, a very unstable object. It really shows the depth of my thinking, the depth of, of focus that I applied. So I'm going to upload this with maybe like a, a little bit of a couple of paragraphs of context about what it was just to help the assessors. And, you know, maybe I'll find two or three more and then that will kind of tick that standard. And so people can kind of just chip away standard by standard. And once it's there, it's there. So if you do get pulled away for three or four months, you come back, you're not going right back to the beginning. You've already kind of got some of it covered. And hopefully, because people will be seeing they're making progress, that will be more motivating to kind of go through and and complete the process. And people aren't going to kind of drop out halfway through, feeling just kind of jaded with it all. So, So that portfolio will then be complete with all the standards. And then what will happen is it will be sent to the assessor who will have a look at it, check that they're happy with the evidence, it's the right standard, it's valid, it's authentic, it's relevant. And they may be able to sign off some of those standards straight away. They may say, actually, I've got everything I need for this standard. I don't need anything further. That's passed. Um, They may say, actually, I don't think this piece of evidence is relevant for this standard. You need to go back and you need to actually pull it, put something different there. And with a lot of the standards, what they'll say is this standard is partially covered, but there are things that we would want to discuss on assessment day because, you know, there is a lot of kind of nuance to a lot of the work that people do. And sometimes the best way to assess that is is through assessment. And then the assessment day itself is a much shorter process because you've already ticked off quite a bit in your folder. So instead of it being this whole day 
this sort of marathon slog where people are kind of on their knees it becomes a three-hour discussion maybe with a little tea break or something in the middle Mm. to just cover the remaining standards that haven't been fully signed off at that point so from the candidate's point of view hopefully it's less pressure because it's not all you know it's like doing your a-levels it's not all on the final exam Mm. you've kind of worked your way through it systematically as you go so you've kind of covered off some stuff it will be more flexible to manage around your workload because you can dip in and out as you need to um and they'll be more flexible in terms of when you start because at the moment there's only kind of two start points a year we're moving that to three start points a year so we're hoping it's it's less intimidating more flexible more doable for the candidate um yeah and for the assessors we're kind of moving to a a system where actually we're hoping to put our assessors through formal endpoint assessment training because at the moment a moment at the moment our system relies on the goodwill of a lot of people um there's a lot of volunteers involved the accreditation committee the mentors the assessors they're all volunteers but the assessors in particular they get an honorarium but it in no way compensates them for the time that they spend on assessment so the idea is that if they become qualified endpoint assessors, then they are being paid more of a market rate. And I think that's important to recognise the contribution they make, because it's actually a very challenging technical thing, assessing somebody at that level on 37 substandards. Um, and we don't want to lose these people. They are incredibly important to us. Um, but, you know, it's cost of living everybody's struggling to make ends meet and we don't want people to be turning around to us and saying well I can't afford to give up this time to do this assessment Hmm. so they'll be that will be much more that will be a step change they'll be being paid a market rate as if they were assessing apprenticeships or any other kind of endpoint qualification so that's kind of what's coming it's going to be later in the spring that we start to kind of implement some of these things you know we might get a pilot group of people on the e-portfolio But we don't want to roll it out until it's ready because I think that would be counterproductive because that may add to candidates' anxiety. And, you know, it's already a nerve-wracking process. I don't want to make it worse for people. So it's coming, but it's not coming just yet. Fantastic. It does. And it all sounds really fantastic, actually. I mean, when you started by listing all of my neurodiversities, I was like, oh, (laughs) I'm being considered. (laughs) I'd be very interested to be involved in, um, I mean, pilot studies or what I'm generally (laughs) super interested to see how it's going to go and and what people think and stuff. So fantastic work. Um, My only my only thought was uh, the the sort of is it going to cost more I suppose is what I'm working my way around to asking yeah I I think there's no getting away from the fact that it probably it will cost more because there is a cost implication for using the e-portfolio system right and there is a cost implication for you know paying the assessors what they're Mm -hmm. worth and we know and we've we've held off from trying to inflate the prices for years because we know conservatives don't have a lot of money um but I think we're at the point where actually, if you look at a lot of other qualifications and, and accreditation costs, we are kind of below a lot of other organisations. So we can't really avoid it forever. But in recognition of the fact that people do find it difficult to to pull together money, particularly at the moment, what once we've got all of these things up and running and we've got the time to kind of focus on it, we are thinking about trying to implement a kind of pay, payment plan. 
so that people see, can stretch yeah. those payments over a more flexible period of time. And, you know, if your institution is paying, they might be able to sort of stretch those payments over two financial years or something mm. like that. So, you know, so it's it's not all coming out in one lump sum. Um, it, I know that's not going to be popular with people. I know there will be pushback, but we've kept it really artificially low for such a long period of time um, that I don't think that's sustainable for much longer. I think people assume that ICON make money off every accreditation we do, whereas actually it's the opposite. It doesn't cover its costs and we take money from the central ICON budget to subsidise it because, um, yeah, we've we've not wanted to kind of inflict that kind of cost on the members, but, you know, it's it's... It's it's not something that's avoidable, unfortunately. And um, if we want to pay people what they're worth to to do this process, then the cost has to go up. The flip side is, if you become accredited, become an assessor, <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll pay you too. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Heather, for talking to us. You've given us a lot to think about, and you've given us um, quite a few answers to our worries of earlier in the episode. So, thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for for inviting me along. And, and, you know, if anybody wants to to talk to me, they're more than welcome to drop me an email and I'm happy happy to talk to people further. First of all, that was a lovely interview with Heather. I really enjoyed this. Wasn't it nice? Yeah. And I feel like this has addressed a lot of my concerns. Mm, not saying not all yeah, of them. pretty much directly yeah yeah not all of them but pretty much directly addressed some of them yeah 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 i feel quite happy with the sort of changes that are being hinted at mm. like i feel like that's quite hopeful and nice and something i can be on board with the thing that obviously enraged me and you know what i'm gonna say now <laughs> is that it's gonna cost more money and i understand every single reason for it <laughs> but, I'm, but it's oh, i know I know. So many feelings. I'm really looking forward to telling my employer that um oh, it's gonna be more money. <laughs> so yeah, you couldn't you wouldn't pay for me to get accredited this time round, so it's gonna be uh gonna be more. more expensive now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's very encouraging that uh a sort of payment plan situation is yes. being considered. Yes. They have talked about this for so many years, though, so I'm quite upset that it's not already a thing. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because 700 is is plenty expensive as a thing. Like, not necessarily. I know it. I know it's it doesn't pay for the for, for accreditation in the ways that Heather's just described to us really clearly. But it's still a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and also, it's worth pointing out. We don't know how much it's going to cost. No, we have no idea. We just know there's going to be more than 700. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you're going, 700 pounds is no money at all, then you are too rich to understand (laughs) what I'm saying. But again, like this is just, we have very different life experiences, very different backgrounds. Mm. It is making it more and more challenging for people who are working class or from a different socioeconomic background of some sort to essentially make it in the profession. But I don't know what the solution is because everything that Heather said and every yeah. all of the arguments, I, I agree with all of it. Of course, you pay people for their time, pay people for their skills, give I them extra training, make them better assessors yeah. because that is the that's the outcome, that's the sort of blunt line outcome, and the the process will be better with training. I am on board with that. People should be paid for what they do. Anyway, I would love to hear what listeners 
think about yeah, any of these things. Yeah, no. I'd love to hear if you've gone through accreditation, what you thought it was like. I would love to hear if you're thinking about it or if you're absolutely against it. I'd just love to hear people's people's thoughts and feelings and experiences. Let's see how it goes. I feel generally kind of buoyed up. Good. I'm glad. Like, because we should say that you haven't actually become accredited in this span of time. It's, you put, I have not. You, you put a pin in it. No. You put a pin in it. I put one of those gigantic comedy nails in it. I feel very kind of buoyed up and encouraged to continue in whatever form it will take in, in the future. We can do it. Totes. Anyway, we'll have to revisit this topic, I think. <laughs> Dear Jane, this is a question from EJ. I'm currently working at a local history museum three days a week as a museum's customer's relations officer. My role is essentially anything front of house and also helping both the curator and public program staff with extra tasks in their roles. I'm also currently studying for a preventive conservation master's course online in the UK. I adore this job and I would ideally love to be made full time. There is enough work to hire two or three more staff. However, being run through local government means our managers are not museum trained and therefore have a very minimal idea of how much work goes into running a museum, especially with one full-timer and two part-timers. My colleagues are also incredibly dedicated, so often work overtime to get projects complete, which I would argue is one of the reasons our higher-ups do not realise how understaffed we are. What I would like some advice on is this. I would absolutely love to expand my role to incorporate what I'm learning in my master's and the museum has truly endless possibilities for preventive conservation and collections care as the curator is too swamped to manage this area regularly. The past year I have really pushed to have at least two to three hours per week with the curator to organise storage rooms and a few hours on our database, which has mistakes dating back to the early 90s. Being understaffed and also only working part-time, however, has meant that the minimum amount is being reached. How would you go about asking managers and the CEO to expand my role to incorporate collection care and preventive conservation? I fear with their limited grounding in museum work, they may dismiss it as unimportant and low priority for the annual expected outcomes versus how I would use it as prepping in the collection for continued use. I have pondered the idea of writing a small plan or proposal for what I would aim to achieve in expanding my role into extra days and also the benefits that this work would bring to the museum overall. For example, exhibition planning as we struggle to find objects currently. Research and other community engagement with the collection due to this work being completed. We've also started digitising and uploading a local website. And I'm based in Australia, where small museums can upload their information to a site. I'm unsure if this is too aggressive a plan, though, and if having a conversation with them would be better. I'd appreciate any wise words and wisdom. EJ. Dear EJ, so one of the things that sometimes happens in conservation is that we let our enthusiasm and our love for conservation sometimes stand in the way of our best communication strategies because we know how important something is and we are so passionate about it that we can sometimes just come across ever so slightly disappointed with other people that they don't get it. And I completely understand that sentiment. But what I would say is reading your question is that I sense your frustration and the massive offer you're making, but I think that the people you're making the offer to will only hear your frustration. So how do we make a bit of an improvement on that? So I'm going to give you some tips and ideas. 
I think you absolutely should present a plan. That bit I completely agree with. And I think you're right to worry about aggressiveness because I think that your tone will come across as that. One of the ways that people will assess whether it's aggressive is by how many negative words and then also how many kind of strong words. So if people don't do things and people aren't good enough or people haven't recognized, those are all negatives. What we need to have is way more positives than negatives. I would say six times as many positive words as there are negative words or positive turns of phrase. So it has to be all about opportunities and deliverables and not about what's not being done. And so being understaffed and overworked, these are all words that you have to really be cautious about. You don't have to obviously do any of the things I say, but this is my advice. So I think you should start by going to the museum or the the authorities corporate plan. Go and find out what they stand for. What do they believe in? Find their words. And then I think you should look at their corporate plan and explain how collections management and expanded collections management role will deliver on that corporate plan. That may mean that you're not really writing the detail of collections management that you want to share. And I think the thing to remember is you've put all this hard work, you're doing this distance learn with um, a university and that is fantastic. And you're probably working really hard, reading loads of stuff and learning all sorts of stuff about, you know, spectra and, and, and humidity shrinkage. But we have to park all of our knowledge because we love the knowledge. I love the knowledge. I'd happily talk with you about the knowledge. But park all that and think not how much do I know, but what do they need to know? What can I tell them that is really helpful to them? So let's take that question and say, what do they want to achieve? What are their corporate plan goals? And let me put together a brief three or four point email or plan that it delivers on those goals. Whatever, however long you write, you've got to be able to summarize everything on one page so that they can glance over that page and make a decision about whether or not to dive in to your recommendations in more depth. So I think it was a lovely idea for you to do two or three more hours a week. I guess the question is, why would they pay you to do that? If you just want to do it for nothing, then I'm sure that would be fine. So really what we're trying to identify is why would they leverage cash to you to do this task? And let's be fair to local politicians, because we should be. They're being asked to leverage cash for other things like education and housing. Now, we would say that culture is not in conflict, and we should always oppose putting culture in conflict with education, housing, roads, primary care services. But we need to show how we deliver on those. How does our well-run museum contribute to local tourism, to education, to uh, a less unequal society? You have to find out what it is that they want to deliver and then explain how your tasks deliver on that. This is going to be difficult and you've got to pull all your frustration back in suck it all up and you've also got to rein in all your new knowledge and again that's for us to deploy we don't have to they don't have to know how difficult it is for us they just need to know how easy we're going to make their solution I would work on that plan first and then I would probably ask for a meeting and just talk it through and what I would do is I would look to the person above you and ask for a meeting to get their advice on your proposals so that you are asking them to look at your proposals they give you their advice and then hopefully you will make the alterations that they suggest and they will then feel part of that recommendation too. They will be then invested in it like you are. And then between you, you can pass it forward. I like to think of it sometimes as, as cogs, that you're a little cog. You've got to turn a cog that's a little bit bigger than you so that that bigger cog can turn another cog that's a little bit bigger than them. So if you can imagine all those things, 
then go to it. I think that you're probably a wonderful student to have. I'm sure you'll be lovely to teach. I do think, though, you do have to watch the tone and how other people perceive it, that they're never good enough. And so just watch out for that. And that is my advice. And I'd love to hear your thoughts because I think this has been a little bit, you know, a little bit sharp, my advice. So, you know, send Jenny your thoughts and feedback. And that is over and up for me. Hey guys, Jenny here. We're really passionate about creating this podcast, but unfortunately it doesn't pay the bill. We don't get paid for anything we do here. That's why we're asking for your help. By becoming a Patreon supporter, you can keep us creating new episodes and sharing these conversations with more people. Even as little as $1 per month helps us out. Speaking of which, I'd like to wish a warm welcome to our latest patron, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining our little group of supporters. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about collections and conflict. In the meantime, check out our website at seaword.show, tweet us at seawordpodcast, find us on the Fediverse at seawordpodcast at glamorous, or simply email us on the seawordpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. 